Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Bria Barthel. And I'm Kaylin McPherson. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, first, Mark Dunley introduces us to the new executive director of the Troy Habilitation and Improvement Program, or TRIP, Noah Baum. Then we hear more from Willie Terry's roundtable discussion, The Struggle Continues. Later on, Elizabeth E.P. Press asks Angela Beeler about the upcoming event called For the Crow, a ritual. After that, Brad Monkel welcomes comedian Matt Toledo to the studio. And finally, Carolyn Tennant asks Pamela McColl about the history of the beloved Christmas story, Twas the Night Before Christmas, and its connection to Troy. All that coming up, but first, here are today's headlines. The Times Union reports that the recently fired Rotterdam Town Zoning Officer is questioning whether her termination was due to her following up on a request by a town board member to investigate whether the scheduling of a drag queen story hour at a local cafe complied with town zoning laws. Bryce Dropper has finalized the purchase of leases, store equipment, and fixtures of all five of the former ShopRite stores in the Capital District. In northern New York, along the Canadian border, human smuggling has dramatically increased. The Times Union reports that northern New York has recently seen a steep uptick in illegal crossings as U.S.-bound migrants seek an alternative to the dangerous southern border. The migrants often arriving from Mexico or parts of Asia, usually fly into Canada before getting dropped off by smugglers just north of the border. The Gaza... Let me start over. The Gazette reports the Schenectady Fire District will halt random drug testing for cannabis among city firefighters. The department has reached an agreement with local 25 or 28 firefighter unions to remove cannabis from the list of 10 drugs for which members are currently screened. Drug testing for cannabis will remain in place for pre-employment candidates. And that's it for the headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org or email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Or you can call 518-272-2390. Now to our first story. The Troy Rehabilitation and Improvement Program, also called TRIP, provides services such as home buying assistance, home repair, and housing counseling. They also rent out properties. Noah Baum, the new executive director, discusses TRIP's mission with Mark Dunley. We're talking with Noah Baum, who recently became the executive director of the TRIP, Troy Rehabilitation and Improvement Program. So we wanted to to welcome Noah and, and give Noah an opportunity to talk a little bit about himself and a lot about what, what is TRIP. So, so Noah, why don't you just... Who is Noah Baum, and why are you now running TRIP? Uh, Good morning, Dan. Thank you, and I appreciate this opportunity. Um, So uh, I have actually been with TRIP 
for eight years now. Um, I started as the controller back in 2016. Um, I then was promoted to COO. I had the, um, the pleasure of being able to work with my predecessor, Christine Nealon, and uh, was able to uh, be involved uh, in the details of our company. And that has really helped me. Uh, Christine decided to step down in June or July of this year. And the board did an internal search and uh, I applied. Uh, we have some great staff here. And um, I was uh, fortunate that uh, they uh, handed the reins of trip over to me. Um, so uh, like I said, it's, it's not new to me. Uh, trip, um, Troy Rehabilitation and Improvement Program um, was uh, is a 501c not-for-profit corporation. It was founded in 1967. And our mission is to connect individual individuals and families with resources and knowledge to live in desirable homes and create vibrant, sustainable communities. We serve the Hillside North and North Central uh, neighborhoods of Troy. Uh, TRIP provides resources supporting home ownership and associated education. Um, we provide hundreds of low-income housing units throughout the city, safe, healthy environments for our families and individuals. Well, when you say uh, you supply low-income yep. housing units, does that mean you own them and rent them out or you help low-income people, you know, purchase them? So it's so we own uh, we own many of the units, uh, but we also manage many of the units. We have seven affiliated uh, companies, so we're pretty complex, not for profit. And uh, some of the other companies do own some of the units, and we manage those for them. I see in here, um, you know, things that you you mentioned: home buying, assistant, housing counseling. You obviously have mentioned, you know, a lot of your work is with, with low-income people, but are there services that, you know, any individual looking to move in Troy might be able to access through TRIP? Absolutely. Um, we have several pre-purchase uh, programs for home ownership, home buyer incentive program. We have a renter's down payment match savings program and a home, home buyer uh, dream program that are available. Uh, you have to apply with a lender, but we assist them with that. Are you, so are you particularly limited to say, as you said, to like Hillside and, and, and North Central or you're citywide? We are city, we're citywide. It would be available basically to anyone within the city um, of Troy and or Lansingburg. And how is sort of, um, I guess, partly your mission has changed over the years, but, you know, how has the housing stock and the housing market been, um, you know, changing over the years that TRIP has, has been active? So, uh, you know, recently with interest rate, rate hikes, uh, this has definitely impacted the availability of, of uh, housing for homeowners um, and also their ability to be able to afford um the uh, the uh, the rates that we have um, we we have certain um, goals that we want to obtain some of them are um, set up by us some of them by 
Uh, we're affiliated with NeighborWorks America. And uh, this past year, we were able to meet the goals that they wanted, but it was far short of what we would have preferred to be at. But our understanding is that there were several other organizations that struggled to uh, to reach the, the goals, the minimum goals. So we're happy to get there. Um, we think that we're seeing some movement in uh, you know in this area, and we're hoping it's going to be a positive movement. And we can uh, do more to help um, our uh, our neighborhoods and our our clients. So I'll just mention this is Mark Dunley with the um, Hudson Mohawk Magazine. So on, on the issue of, of of home repairs, I guess one question I would have. Uh, I used to do a lot of housing work when I ran the Hunger Action Network for a couple decades. Uh, and, and so one issue is always, you know, how well are landlords actually maintaining uh, their homes? And, you know, has code enforcement in the city of, of Troy improved in terms of making sure the landlords are bringing stuff up? And, and what type of home repairs, you know, are you helping people with? Absolutely. Another great question. So. Uh, because uh, some of our uh, affiliates are HUD, US, um, U.S. Housing and Urban Development, we are held to standards and we, uh, we have um, inspections done uh, every three years. Uh, if we don't do so well, it may be every year, but we are expected to maintain uh, our housing, and we do that. We have satisfactory scores in that. Um, we have some, uh, we also are responsible to the city of Troy. Uh, they go and they inspect, and um, they will write things up if they see something that is not uh, correct or needs to be corrected. And so we are expected to turn that around. I think the city of Troy does a great job with that and um, I think we're fortunate that we do not see a lot of write-ups uh, associated with our buildings. Um, if, if people are interested in accessing uh, the services of, of TRIP, how best can they do that? Uh, so our phone number here is 518-272-8289. Uh, if you, if they want to call in, uh, the, the, that'll go to our front desk at 409 River Street, and they'll be directed to the to an individual who can help them with their specific questions. Um, they're also uh, they can also set up a uh, a meeting. They can come in and meet with our staff, homeownership, rental, depending on what their needs are. Um, and again, our, our location is 409 River Street. Troy, New York, one two one eight zero. Um. So, as the new executive director, are there some some new initiatives that you're hoping that you know you'll be able to get funding for, or expand, or, or improve? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're actually working with, and I I, I don't uh, we're we're kind of preliminary on this. We're working with two different groups right now on projects that are taking place. Uh, one is actually in the uh, in the city of Troy, close to our location, um, and looks like we're you know we're trying to to manage that uh, facility for the people that are involved. Um, we've also been contacted uh, by another group, and that's more in the um, 
out by the uh, Hudson Valley Community College area. So we're looking at that. We are looking to expand. We're looking to improve our uh, our revenue sources. You know, we recently did a 51 unit um, project, Hillside Views, in conjunction with Unity House. And uh, it was a very successful program. We have uh, eight new buildings in Troy. Um, some of the older structures that were designated to be um, demolished were demolished for this project. And we're looking to always do more of those type of uh, those type of deals. I am uh, my background is financial in nature. So I'm keeping a key eye on that, but I am not losing um, at all our focus on community and continuing to improve uh, community whenever we can. Well, thank you very much. We've been talking to uh, Noah Baum, the new executive director of Troy Rehabilitation and Improvement Program. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. And the sanctuary welcomes Noah Baum as Tripp's new executive director for related stories search for, quote, Troy Re Rehabilitation, end quote, on our website, mediasanctuary.org. Next, we have more from our roaming labor correspondent, Willie Terry's roundtable discussion entitled The Struggle Continues with freedom fighter and civil rights icon Mukasa Dada a.k.a. Willie Ricks, who coined the slogan, Black Power. Co-hosts joining him are Carlos DeFar and An Angel Martinez. This is part four of the roundtable coverage. And we need a revolutionary government, a communist party, socialist party, socialist nation like Fidel Castro, and take all of that and give housing to people, build houses, that's yours. Build, make sure, make doctors out of their children, build the best medical center, create the best medicine. That's yours. We're going to take care of you. Uh, educate people, put them from the daycare, nursery, all the way through the university, pay you to go to school, give you whatever you need to go to school. And that's the kind of system we need. Light bill, gas bill, water, food, medicine, all that is your human right. And there's no charge for none of that. And that's the kind of system we need to set up a socialist uh, system and get rid of the system where the rich get rich and the poor get poor. Uh, them bombs ain't nothing but criminals. Had everybody else working for them and stealing your resources, making themselves rich with billions of dollars, putting shit paper money uh, above human race and above everything. And that don't mean nothing. We need to get rid of money and make sure that we would just be servants of the people and lift the people up with the things they need. But in order to do it, we know we got to unite. And we know we got to crush the forces of imperialism. And also, we can't forget neo-colonialism. Those are Uncle Toms and people that look like us, but work for the system and fight against us and fight for the system. We're going to have to whoop them, too. Mm -hmm. mm, interesting. So let's, let's take back on that. What was your uh, experience or working relationship with Kwame Ture? You seem amazing. Um, <laughs> you about that. He's my man, him, a good buddy, and we did everything together. We fought many fights together mm -hmm. in Lowndes County, Alabama, where we started the Black Power, the Black Panthers, uh, down in uh, Tuskegee, where they killed Sammy Young. We were down there fighting. We were in Mississippi, throughout Mississippi, fighting so many battles and wars and organizing stuff. 
Uh, we uh, walked 250 miles on the Black Power March, American March, and we had to fight all the way. We called for Black Power, went on the offense, and took over the movement and stuck Black Power out there to the world. And when Black Power hit them, everybody understood it. When Detroit heard about Black Power, the people went to the streets and started burning the city down, saying Black Power. And then Black Power went all over, and everybody started burning down their city, saying Black Power. And they were saying Black Power means that we proud our hair, our nose, our lips. And if we had Black Power, they couldn't jail us, kill us, murder us, and do the thing to, they're doing to us right now. So Black Power means that we could solve the socioeconomic and political problems of all our people. So me and Stoker and then we fought against the war in Vietnam. We joined them and Ho Chi Minh in the fight against uh, uh, the American imperialism and French imperialism in Vietnam. And where Ho Chi Minh was fighting in Vietnam, we had the whole United States on fire and they were saying black power. And so uh, Stokely and I, we did some of everything together. I don't know how we became such good buddies. Uh, but we did. He one way and I'm one way. He know one thing. I know one thing. I guess what I don't know, he knew what so, I'm. So y'all raised, y'all raised each other. Raised each other. <laughs> yeah, because I'm trying to figure out how you raised, you know. That, I, I, yeah, I raised that boy. Right. I raised Adrian Brown too. Right. Did, did you have any spells well, with Martin Luther King? I mean, uh, my best you? friend Martin loved me to death. I. Uh -huh. I was on him because he couldn't stop me from throwing bricks. I was in Snick, <laughs> and I threw bricks and bottles, and Martin Luther King said no. Snick put me on the same stage to say yes. Like when we was in Selma, Alabama, they gave us injunction after they beat us on the bridge. Mm -hmm. And I, matter of fact, when Martin walked across the bridge, me and Farmer, I was right next to Martin King when we walked across the bridge. But when Martin was in there and saying the United States government uh, uh, has given an injunction that you can't march, uh, in Selma, and Snick said, and Martin said, we obey that injunction, and Snick said, that injunction, we ain't obeying no injunction, damn the jury, damn the government, we're going to mow it. And Martin King was in the church talking to a, a thousand people and reporters and people from around the world. Snick was outside talking to 2,000 people on the streets. And we had the street people screaming, Marge, Marge, Marge. Well, Martin and the other folks in that time, we weren't going to march, but we shook them up so bad, they knew if they didn't march, we were going to march without them. And we took the people across that bridge, and when we went across that bridge, Martin King uh, had made a deal, Andrew Young, who we call Uncle Andy, had made a deal with the government that they would march across the bridge and then turn around and they just let them march across and that wouldn't be break the injunction. And we didn't know it, Martin and them did that. And when Martin King did that, we came back and we criticized them. Mm -hmm. And then Foreman and all of us, we went to Montgomery and started throwing rocks and bricks and demonstrating and and even sitting on the uh, <laughs> Capitol steps. <laughs> and, we, and we took over Martin King's church down to Dexter. I was the pastor up in there for about a week. I think we had about a week or two. I was the pastor. And then we get rid of you. The <laughs> took it over. And then me and Foreman went down to Alabama State, took over Alabama State for about two weeks and I was president up there too. I was president of Alabama State until the state troopers came and took it back, put me in jail. I was in Cuba prison. <laughs> mm -hmm. But we took it. And so me and Stoker, we fought so many battles together. I can't even begin to uh thought we 
fought for South Africa, we fought for Angola, Mozambique, Zimbabwe together. We went into Guinea together and we helped and joined Sekou Toure and took guidance from Kwame Nkrumah. And every liberation movement in the world that you were throwing rocks, bricks, or shooting, or shooting airplane at the sky, like Felimo and like they were doing in Zimbabwe and and um, uh, uh, Brian, Guinea-Bissau, we joined in with them. So me and Stoker, we joined in and we fought many, many, many battles together. Carlos, you had something you wanted to say? The only thing I could say is that we got to honor our elders, including myself. I ain't no young dude, because this is history. This could not be erased because this is history that I enjoyed. I'm thankful to Gwen. To many people, I also I didn't even mention uh, Johnny Wilson and all these other people. Johnny Wilson, <laughs> you you remember him? I'm saying that we gotta honor all of us, but we gotta also honor one that I wrote for, Mama Ella Baker, that made everything possible for us because we are the children of Ella, of Ella Baker. That's what I have to say. And also based on you saying Ella Baker. We had all many, 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 many women in the movement all through Mississippi, cotton field women and all that. And they were such intellectuals, so intelligent, so brave and warriors, just like Ella Baker, Fannie Lou and many others. And we got so many, we couldn't even begin to remember all of them, couldn't even begin to think about all their names. But there was the women. They were powerful, not only the women, the children. They faced dogs, bombed, jailed, bombed up. If somebody died, they got bit by dogs, went to jail, did everything. And our young kids, some four, five, six years old, but they was on the front line fighting. This is what we have. This is what you see in Palestine today. Ain't no age in the revolution. And everybody have to go out there and fight together. And now we have to create that Pan-Africanist movement and join in all the different little groups and organizations together and begin to realize that we have to fight together and we definitely got to link up with our different people, especially in the Congo, where we exposed the Congo and what Lumumba was talking about and doing in the Congo and see how imperialism is committing genocide on the people in the Congo right now. In the last four or five years, over 7 million people have died. Right. And they killed them. They got them out there digging with their hand, little babies digging coton or cobalt, and this stuff, some of it's chemical minerals and, and, and radiation, and they dig and just trying to get a piece of bread or meat, and they ain't got no shell to live in. They're living just like the people in Palestine, and that's what the United States and all this imperialists are doing. They ain't just doing it in Palestine. They bomb Somalia every day. They have totally destroyed Libya, yeah. killed the president. And they're doing all of Africa like that, but not only Africa, they in South and Central America, they in the Caribbean, they're all over. So this imperialism, this Zionism is worldwide and to worldwide together, we have to join in. That's why we joined the Palestinians years ago and joined all the different African movements. Let Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam become our guide. Got the little red book from uh, Mao Zedong and <laughs> listen to Kwame Kuma Sekou Toure. Lumumba became one of our little gods after they killed him. And he spoke and guided us from the grave and Che Guevara and, and you know Fidel and all the people that he have influenced and have passed the word to us and 
and Maurice Bishop down there where they killed in Grenada and whatever. There's so many. You can't begin to name, but this revolutionary continue. And I want you to know that bullets and guns and bombs don't kill revolutionaries. Just make them strong and make them free from the grave. This is part four of this discussion. The other parts can be heard on our website, mediasanctuary.org. All you got to do is search The Struggle Continues. For those just tuning in, I'm Bria Barthel. And I'm Kellen McPherson. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy. WOOS, nope. W-O-O-G-L-P 92.7 FM Troy, W-O-O-S-L-P 98.9 FM Schenectady, and W-O-O-A-L-P 106.9 FM Albany, and and always streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by joining our team or just by telling a friend. Today's segments, as well as past episodes and individual segments, and much more can be found at mediasanctuary.org. Next up, Angela Beeler speaks to Elizabeth E.P. Press about an event taking place on November 29th called For the Crows, a ritual. The event is hosted by the Flags, Flags with three S, Day Collective. They will be joined by a poet, C.A. Conrad, who will also be doing a poetry event on Tuesday evening at the Arts Center of the Capital Region. On Wednesday, November 29th, the Flags Day Collective will gather at Monument Square at 5 p.m. in Troy, New York, for their second Crow honoring. This event is called For the Crow, a Ritual. The Flags Day Collective will be joined by poet C.A. Conrad. Today, here on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we are joined with Flags Day Collective member Angela Beeler to talk about this event and more. Angela, welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thanks for having me back. So just to start off, remind us, what is the Flags Day Collective? So you are likely familiar, dear listener, that uh, Troy, New York once hosted the largest Flag Day gathering in the country, which was Um, usually a parade um, that brought together uh, people from the fire department and um, marching bands and such to celebrate this sort of patriotic uh, holiday that um, was about celebrating the American flag and was really solidified as a holiday in light of the protests against the Vietnam War that the U.S. was engaged in. During those protests, people would take to the American flag, burning the flag, turning it upside down. And the Flag Day holiday was against that. And so um, when the Flag Day uh, parade stopped in Troy, um, we I started putting out a proposal to gather for a flags plural day, so flags with the SSSs, to emphasize that it's multiple flags, um, to change to take that day and to actually affirm it as a day for dissent um, paired with celebration and to invite participants to gather um, mostly in the streets to make their own kinds of flags, often around different themes um, related to migration or queerness, and to uh, hold these hold these events around that June day. Um, we've also done a number of events at other times of the year, and this uh, upcoming event in November is one of those. 
So as you say, this is not the first time the Flags Day Collective has honored the Crows here in Troy. Um, can you tell us about this event for the Crows, a ritual that you're hosting on Wednesday, November 29th in Troy? Yeah, so last year in the nearing the winter months, the, the Crows came to Troy as they do every year and as they come to many upstate uh, cities to gather. And, um, you know, they choose different points, different places to gather in the Troy area. And last year, I think particularly because they chose the downtown area to gather and people were very upset and felt that um, the crows gathering, the poop gathering on their cars was uh, an, an invasion. They felt the crows were an invasion. I feel like, and many people feel like um, living with so many crows gathering in the city is actually, well, of course, that's kind of annoying, but it's it's joyful to me to see um, so many crows gathering. And I always like uh, experiencing that. So last year, when the city announced that they were going to be using um, sound cannons to disperse the crows, it um, kind of became a public conversation in Troy, who was for, who was against the crows. And so the Flags Day Collective put together a gathering um, against displacement that said, let's celebrate that these um, crows are living in Troy. And what are other means to um, take on the fact that we have to cohabitate? You can't push them off. They're going to come back. And as we've seen, they've come back. And um, we also saw it as a moment to talk about displacement um, in relation to our you know, human neighbors. Um, there were many conversations regarding um, unhoused people in Troy. And again, it's like, where are they going to go? How can we push them out of the streets? And you know, wanting to talk about this relationship to crows and other people and other beings that we share space with um, to talk about a, a way to, to have relationship and figure that out rather than pushing them off. Um, so this year, we're returning to the crow as a kind of winter version of Flags Day. And um, we're asking people to gather. It will be very cold. So we'll be gathering at 5 p.m. at Monument Square very briefly to do a ritual gathering and to gather objects um, to offer up to the crow. And we'll be reading poems and um, C.A. Conrad, who is a poet, they live in, uh, they are in Western Massachusetts, um, will be coming and reading at a, uh, a reading at the Arts Center. Great. Who is C.A. Conrad and why did you invite them to participate in this crow ritual? Recently, C.A. Conrad was invited to do a top 10 list for Art Forum, Art Forum Journal. And amongst the items on the top 10, Crow Gifts was one of them, where they talked about uh, being on the West Coast and leaving items out for Crow and the Crow eventually taking these away and leaving other items in return and wrote about cross or interspecies collaboration, which I thought was really beautiful. And knowing that C.A. Conrad was going to be coming to town, uh, we reached out to see if they would be open to uh, help us carry out uh, this ritual and honor our Crow neighbors once again. And C.A. Conrad uh, is a poet who uh, drafts somatic exercises, uh, takes themselves through these experiences, only eating red and listening to albums about red and uh, wearing red glasses or, you know, red clothing. And then in the space that comes through going through that writes 
poetry. And uh, so um, I've taken a number of workshops with C.A. Conrad and have really always enjoyed their work. And so um, was really excited to know that they would be coming to Troy and um, imagined that it could be a nice way for us to gather um, with this kind of shared love and reverence for, uh, for crows. Great. Now you uh, mentioned that you are asking participants to bring an offering. Can you just describe a little bit about uh, how this ritual will go at Monument Square on Wednesday the 29th? So just to read a little bit from C.A. Conrad's art forum list, uh, they wrote, During the COVID-19 lockdown, I was in Seattle, the empire of the crows. I fed them fruit, nuts, and crackers from a plastic hummus container I nailed to a window ledge. The birds came all day, different tribes moving over the city, terrorizing cats and humans who wronged them. One began to bring me gifts. It would stay on the ledge to eat lunch with me, allowing me to stroke, stroke its beak. So that was sort of the inspiration. And we've heard this. We know that, I mean, crows are quite intelligent. They use tools, um, things that could be beyond our comprehension about how they um, exist as communities. But um, knowing that this is something that can frequently happen, um, we're asking people to bring offerings for the crows. So a gift could be a nut, could be a, a, a twig, it could be a love note, um, some kind of trinket that you want to offer. And because we're the flag stay collective out of this, the thought is that we will um, make what's called a cyanotype flag, which is you use sun, the sun to imprint on fabric, the objects. So that will be the the sort of record of what was brought, and then we will leave them somewhere where they're roosting right now. Um, but we're just asking, it's just a way for us to, you know, come together. Um, and and I think it's, it's, um, it's sort of a preparation to take part in this ritual is to think about what would you, what would you want to give or offer up the crows? What, what can you leave behind? Um, what might they like? And so, um, you know, the object itself is a, thing, whatever we make out of it, but just that kind of investment that it asks of those coming to participate, gets you thinking ahead of time and sort of warming you up for what we may experience with C.A. Conrad on Wednesday. Excellent. Uh, Angela Beeler, is there anything else that you would like to add? Should people bring their own flags or is it is this not that type of event? No, we're in. We're encouraging people to dress in your best corvid drag, your best crow drag. Um, I think a good cape is a nice uh, costume. Um, black lace, black flowers, um, flags. We 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 held um, last week a gathering around uh, at the studio to see some of our previous flags um, hanging in exhibition, and we. Um, had a crafting session for people to create their own flags. So pe some people will be coming with those. If you have your own, something that makes you think about crow or just makes you happy and you just want to bring it, please uh, please feel free to. Again, we won't be there long. So come as close to five as you can. Uh, find us at Monument Square um, and then maybe go have a warm drink with us afterwards. Beautiful. Angela Beeler, one third of the Flags Day Collective. Thank you for joining us today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you for having me. Thanks to Angela Beeler for that interview. The other members of the Flags Day Collective are Elizabeth E.P. Press and Hannah Vanderkolk. To find out more about the Flags Day Collective, visit flagsday.org. That's flag three S's day dot O-R-G. 
Now we turn to our weekly comedy segment with Brad Monkel. Hello, Brad. How are you? Hey, Kalen. I'm doing good. Thank you for having me again. Yeah, you're welcome. Hi, Bria. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks. Good to hear you again. Yeah, always good to be here You'd this to, week. Yeah, I, uh, right after Thanksgiving. Yep, yep. I look forward to this every week, and mm-hmm. this, this week was no different. Right, no. Who'd you bring with you this week? This week, I am very happy to be joined by the very funny Matt Toledo. Hello, Matt. Welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Hey, thank you for having me, everybody. Um, thank you for coming, Matt. Uh, Matt uh, is one of the hosts of the Monday Night Open Mic at McCaddy's which is uh, every Monday at 8 o'clock in Troy, a very fun time there. And uh, he is also just coming off of beating me in a roast battle at Polly's Hotel recently. How do, you, how do you feel, Matt? What does it feel like to beat somebody in a roast battle? Uh, it's, I'm feeling pretty good about it. Uh, I think the judging of the contest was a little funky around the end. You definitely had more quantity of material than me because I ran out of things to say about you because you're just such a friendly guy. <laughs> So, well, so nice. Yeah. <laughs> well, quality though. You had quality jokes. I did, so. I did have some quality burners there, apparently, because I got the win. I'm yeah, pretty, I'm feeling pretty good about it. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to repeat them, but I also uh, some of them are a little harsh for radio. I think it's it's fun though. I we 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 agreed from the jump. We were like, we're gonna be mean to each other. Yeah, it was really fun to just uh, have an excuse to go all out, like not yeah. hold back, but. Yeah, not friendly for radio. Come out to the shows, I think, is if, if you want to hear that kind of stuff would be... Ideally, yeah. yeah. You still you still have the jokes written down somewhere. If, you, if Some, someone requests yeah, them, I have if you get some requests wall, for actually. making fun of me, you can use <laughs> those. Uh, <you> can. <laughs> so if you ever want to hear some terrible things about me, request it from Matt Toledo at an open mic Definitely. or one of his gigs. I'll be, I'll be happy to talk, <laughs> talk bad about Brad. Um, and uh, I mean... Was that your first roast battle that you've done? That was my first roast battle. I was a little nervous going in. Uh, I know you've done it a couple times. I saw you roast. One other time. Oh, uh, yeah. You went with Joe Alfano, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We both ran out of stuff for the third round on that one. Yeah. And, and uh, Aiden really needs to work on the format for that a little bit, I think, just it, as far as structure goes. It's it's a little hard. I'm not saying it's Yeah, yeah. It felt a little smoother, but I th- this time but i almost feel like we just paced ourselves more definitely yeah and i had some jokes that were way too long yeah yeah. (laughs) that definitely ate up some time for us yeah which is good i whatever appreciate it um but uh do you like did you like roasting before that or like do you follow any of the roast shows closely or not really um you know i'll I'll catch roast battles on youtube every so often uh Tony Hinchcliffe's one of my favorite comedians. Well, he's yeah, a big he's roaster. Yeah, yeah. He's, that's literally his job is to roast. So. And he's very mean. He's very mean. So. Do, you, do you? I mean, what do you think of mean comedians? Is it like? I think it's the way to go. I think I think you need to be able to say whatever you want, and like if it's mean, like go over the top with it if you if you can make it funny. Otherwise, yeah. you're gonna come off like a jerk. Well, yeah, you do have to commit. That's the thing. Yeah, I, you have to commit, and like you got to be happy to take some hate every now and then i think yeah. at the end of the day i don't you know i don't even like to be mean but i, I like being made fun of and thinking of silly th- i try to like nestle a little bit of a compliment into my mean things <laughs> but you, but it's kind of fun either way if people are are down for it i don't know <laughs> jazz came in there early i guess brad was too excited <laughs> no that was me that was me that wasn't pre-recorded <laughs> my, my stomach i'm sorry <laughs> Um, but, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think I've gotten to ask you before. 
<laughs> Matt, so how long have you been doing comedy? Um, I think it's about six years now. It gets confusing because I took a year off with uh, the COVID-19 yeah, pandemic of before course. the vaccine was available. Because yeah. I'm not a degenerate like some of these Albany comics out there. Um, <laughs> Whoa, <laughs> harsh words there. <laughs> he said worse stuff at the, at the roast battle. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, back then in the scene... Uh, how would you say it's like different pre-pandemic to how it was today? You know, I did like two mics like a year apart before the pandemic, but I didn't really start until after. Um, it was a lot more. Uh, there was a lot less people back then. Like the markets become a little oversaturated with uh, people doing comedy. I don't know. I think so. You're saying I'm jumping on the bandwagon now? No, I mean if you if you, if you were doing it before the pandemic, I no. think you're good. Everything that everyone after it, nah, just get out of here. Yeah. That's my opinion. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, does you feel like that's increased the quality of the scene to have more like activity? Yeah, a lot of different voices adds to uh, more competition. Different, like you have to kind of compete with if you can hold the audience's attention if you're interesting. So it's nice to have like there's a ton of different kinds of comics. I'm sure you've like, yeah, you've, of course. You've well, it's a cast of characters. Yeah, a- any scene it has to be, but it's it's a fun scene around here. Definitely, you know, I, have a, I have a lot of fun with it. Um, and, uh, I mean, when you, when you first started out, do you have any like particularly like memories of things or just like weird experiences at open mics? Um, I got a, like heckled very early on by like just a group, like, cause I was at an open mic for music. There was just a Ooh, group of drunk yeah. Irish guys at this Irish pub in Albany. And, uh, like I tried to talk back at them but I wasn't funny enough because I had just started so it was just like oh you said that I, it didn't come off well and uh, at the end of the day they could, probably could have beat me up so good thing you, you dodged know. that one yeah I got out of there really fast yeah yeah, yeah. Or, do you feel like you're better at heckling now like have you smashed yeah, some people yeah I, I think I can really get the audience on my side like you you understand your power a little bit more as you've been doing it longer um, and you just have like stage presence and comfortability up there if you've been doing it for a while that's the hard part about stand-up is like you got to be doing it 10 years to even know if you're good at it yeah and if if you're not you know dunning kruger might tell you it is you are still you know you never you never know yeah i mean that's like getting into it i I thought to myself it's like if i'm gonna do it it's like if before 10 years passes what what even matters like I yeah. shouldn't expect anything out of it until you, until you put that kind of time in, you know? Yeah, that's kind of how I look at this scene in general. It's like there's a lot of different open mics in the area, and it's kind of a small incubator. Like there's, not, like, there's not a lot of production coming around here to scope out these open mics. You can really test what audiences like without there being a huge risk to your, like, I don't know. Yeah. Well, reputation. I'm, well... I'm just lucky I'm not a very successful musician yet. Yeah, Because yeah. <laughs> I would hope that I eventually can be, a, a, like, a little more successful. But I'm I'm still young, so, like, it would be weird starting out, like, I like the, would you, the like, level. If, if it came down to it, if you got the opportunity to do comedy full-time, would you do it, like, as opposed to being a musician? Or would you no, have would... to... Uh... I would do both. You do both? I think. Yeah. yeah. No, I think, I think I can make them both work. But I do worry sometimes, like, you know... People talk about like jack of all trades as a concept. Like you can't bite off so much. I'm do I'm here doing radio too, which is not helping. But just it's com- yeah. just combined all of them: radio, music, and comedy. You're an entertainer. You're yeah. Brad yes. the entertainer. 
Yes, I'm bad at all three things. <laughs> no, <laughs> but, you're not. No, no. But I do, I do feel like they help me in certain ways with each other. And maybe I do need to spend more time, but I, as long as you're consistent, I try to at least yeah. do have like a weekly, if not daily, thing I do with each of them. The, you know, mostly daily for comedy and music, and then this is my weekly like radio thing. But. Yeah, no, this seems like a great outlet for you, um, especially just like your whole rhythm on stage is kind of based like... Uh, NPR, right? Yeah, yeah. a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> NPR, but more boring. <laughs> I th- wait, did you say that about me? I think you said that about me at the roast. No, no, that wasn't me, unfortunately. I, I wish I could take credit for that. But, uh, <laughs> um, I've probably gotten it multiple times. Yeah. Um, what about like, do you ever Mitch Hedberg yourself? I'm sure you get that all the time. What, with the bass? Yeah, yeah, people suggest it. Yeah. I guess so, so many people suggest yeah. the bass. I don't want to carry that thing. <laughs> this, this, these are my easy gigs. I don't have to worry about anything else. I just walk in with stuff memorized to say. Just got to talk about that. But yeah, I, I mean, I would like to combine the two you know, be able to do them both eventually. But for I'm, what I'm going to ask you next, you, have you done anything else artistic, like predominantly? Uh, I did uh, community theater production back That's in right. 2016. It's actually yeah. before I started comedy. And then after that, I got, you know, I, I needed to hit the stage, but there's not a lot of uh, productions around here as far as musical theater goes. So I was like, oh, I'll try stand up comedy. Got, you know, the courage to do it one night. Never looked back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it's funny. I, we, we talked about this getting ready for the roast. I used to also do theater. And uh, uh, Matt and I actually went to, like, rival schools. He went to Caro Durham, and I went to Greenville. We yeah. used to we used to whoop you guys in soccer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm just one of the kids who didn't care about sports, so I don't take that rivalry seriously. But, <laughs> I, but it, did, it, did, it did leave like a first impression bad taste in my mouth when I learned you were from Greenville. I was like, oh, it's my rival. Now. Yeah, basically. <laughs> bad. I got to be yeah. a better comic than him. <laughs> yeah, but it was just too perfect that we did the roast battle. But, you know, yeah. I did sports, but I sucked at those. Yeah. I was really bad, and I was pretty bad in the musicals too, but I'm glad I did them. Okay, so but you you like musical theater also, but if you if you weren't doing comedy, what's like the artistic? If you couldn't do it, what's the artistic pursuit you'd want to go for? Um, probably acting, I would say, just something like that, because then I could still be a little comedic with it. Um, I play a little bit of guitar, but not enough. Like I'm a four chords drummer, so I can't really dedicate my life to that at this point. Because you doing country? I yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe some folk music. I'm thinking. I've thought about mixing like guitar and comedy because then you don't have to be that good at guitar but and yeah. i'm funny so yeah no i mean any you you've been could do the folk thing you've been down in woodstock a bit yeah, lately yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you could be doing that but uh i mean i just want to say again thank you so much for joining us in the studio well, um thanks so much for great, having me great to uh talk and get to know a little bit more about you and it was an honor roast battling you um if anyone is interested in following Matt online, you could find him at Matt Toledo on Twitter, correct? Yep. X or uh, the Matt Toledo on Instagram, and he hosts the Monday night open mic at McCaddy's in Troy at 8 p.m. Uh, again, thank you so much, Matt. Matt thank Toledo, you so much everybody. for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thank everybody. you both for coming on. Thank you, Kaylin. Thank you, Kaylin. Bria. Thanks, Bria. Great to hear you, and thanks, Brad, for helping us showcase a local comedian each week. My pleasure. Now moving to our final segment of the night, the holiday season has arrived! This winter, Solstice, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, St. Lucia's Day, Three Kings Day, and many others. Yet, for many people, this season is most identifiable with... 
Christmas. Which brings us to Santa Claus and one very special poem. Carolyn Tennant speaks with Pamela McColl, author of Twas the Night, the Art and History of the Beloved Poem, and discusses its connection to Troy. I'm joined by Pamela McCall, author of Twas the Night, the Art and History of the Classic Poems. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. So this is the 200th anniversary of what is arguably one of the most famous poems, which was published here in Troy. For many, it brings a lot of memories up of childhood. So why don't we go down memory lane a little bit with you and, and find out your first experience, what, what it conjures. I was given a copy of the poem when I was around the age of four. Whenever Christmas comes around, it's always, as you said, a very nostalgic time of the year. And my family, as many other families, gathered to read this poem on Christmas Eve. You know, I think that that's one of the reasons it survived is that it was read by a loved one to a child. And it's this memory of that. And then, of course, during this very magical time of the year. So I think that's really um, the legacy of it. And, you know, it's a tradition that's, you know, that's been carried on for centuries now. <laughs> Do you have a favorite version of the story or um, like a copy with illustrations that you recall from your childhood? Yes, I do. I mean, the one I had when I was four, I still have. It's got a floss cover. It's a, a die cut. It's, you know, my favorite because my father gave it to me. But I also have editions like Darley edition, which is probably my favorite if you want to come at it from an illustration point of view, because Darley, who was the father of American illustration, does this wonderful illustrated edition of the poem in 1862. And he portrays Santa Claus, St. Nick, as an elf character, a very tiny little guy. And I just think because he kept so close to the script, the story, it's hard to choose this one. I mean, if one was to ask what is the quintessential twas, it would probably be a, maybe Darley, maybe Jesse Wilcox Smith. Why don't we talk about the author and who he was and what was his story? Clemency Moore was um, based in Chelsea. Um, he's a very wealthy uh, family, the Moore and the Clark family out of Chelsea. And he went to Columbia University. He also um, wrote the first Hebrew lexicon, first Hebrew dictionary in America. He was a real scholar, very charitable man. He also was a loving father. He had nine children. He was a humble man, somewhat eccentric, but absolutely a loving father. And when he wrote this poem, it was intended for his children. And the fact that it was published in Troy, was unbeknownst to him because he hadn't written it to be published. He'd written it for his children. So what inspired your interest in the topic? Yeah, it was just a love, you know, a love of history and art and Christmas. And of course, this poem, and I brought it all together. And somebody said to me, you know, how did you write 264 pages on a poem? Well, I mean, this is the period of Moore's life, which is 1779 to 1863. So we're talking, you know, the American Revolution, <laughs> the American Civil War, and then, of course, into the 1900s and the 20th century. So, you know, it's um, a pretty big piece of history, and it's pretty fascinating. But you also have to reach back to the third century in the Roman Empire and St. Nick um, to really get the full scope of the story. And then you have to draw all the threads from the Roman Empire through Western culture into America. So it's quite a task to do that and to keep it all <laughs> coherent. So when Kirkus gave me a review and they commented that it was well organized, that was probably the best compliment I could have got at times thinking that I was writing the history of the world. So where did the research take you? Where were the archives that you visited or accessed remotely? 
Yeah, well, the Moore papers are with Columbia. So I actually went to the archives at Columbia and, and read his diaries and looked through all his mother's letters and did all of that. And that was really interesting. Um, it's very intimate sort of reading somebody's you know diary. And uh, I also um, found the uh, only photograph of Moore in the Columbia archives, which was really fun to find. And that was a really thrilling day when I opened the file and got to see what he looked like. I, I know there's six portraits of the man, but there's something about a photograph. And uh, that was pretty magical. And I went to um, Cornell and all over the place. But I did a lot of work on the illustrations, too. And so that took me to the William and Mary, um, the Swen Library, took me to Oklahoma, took me to Westchester, took me to all over the place looking up editions because I wanted to see them. And uh, and then, of course, it was just a lot of purchasing because, again, of COVID, I ended up buying a lot of things just so I could see them and a lot of newspapers and magazines and uh, and then coordinating with other people who are interested in this topic. And there's a lot of literary sleuths out there. So. So you yourself are telling a really fascinating story about the poem and how it kind of moves beyond this innocence and um, nostalgic quality. What were some of the stories that you uncovered about how it was used historically? You know, I think one of the really interesting things about this poem is that it was written by a man who was, you know, very religious, very very Christian. And he decided to base it on the story of St. Nicholas, which is the story of Nicholas coming to a family who were in dire straits. The man had two children who were on the brink of being sold into slavery. Nicholas comes and he throws gold through the window and he saves one of them. And then he comes back the next night and the father stays up to see who it is. And he catches him and he says, oh, it's you. And he says, oh, no, I didn't want this is anonymous. I don't want any gratitude. You want it to be of God. It's so similar to this story. And it's about anonymous giving. It's about generosity. It's about recognizing need. It's about love and charity and all these things. The great thing about this poem, and I think why it survived 200 years, is Moore took out the birchen rod. There is no threat of punishment. And it specifically says there's nothing to dread. It's a very Christian concept with the idea of non-judgment. And I think that that is the quality of this poem that is wonderful for children because I think that they must have been very relieved that St. Nick was coming without a stick to swat them on the backside with, right? So I, I mean, I really do. So because the year before there'd been a poem written with a Santa Claus or St. Nicholas coming in a wagon with one reindeer and a bunch of books to give to children, but he brought the birchen rod. So I think that that's the quality of the poem. And I think that's the, I think that's the heart of it, is this generosity and this wonderful character of Santa Claus, St. Nicholas, or St. Nick, or, or an elf, however you want to, to see him. I mean, another thing that's really interesting about this um, is that it wasn't illustrated at the beginning. It was illustrated in 1830 by Myron King, but it was um, presented without illustration. And so you could have an illustrator come to this and interpret it the way they wanted to. And so you can get these great variations on what this Santa Claus looks like. Um, so I think that's really interesting, too. And it works without illustration. And the language of the poem that he's an elf, I think, is important um, because it does cross into the secular as well. So you can have him, you know, Santa Claus, the elf, um, can be, you know, enjoyed by many different cultures. I mean, it's been translated into Yiddish because he's an elf. Um, you know, he's pretty well welcome wherever we go. But uh, no, I think that's really uh, those are the two big things, I think, um, that would say would, would answer the question of why is this poem survived? Why are we still reading it in the 21st century? Has the poem been used in any way politically or for social causes? 
Yes, it has. It was used during the Civil War. I mean, the Civil War, both sides politicized it. They wrote incredible prefaces. <laughs> you know, like they'd say, oh, those damn Yankees, they blocked the roads and Santa Claus won't be coming. For, no, the children won't be getting any toys this year, those damn Yankees. And then, of course, on the other side, you know, they'd be, they'd be doing the same thing. And then you have Thomas Nast, of course, coming to it, illustrating Santa Claus in the camps for Harper's, right? There's Santa Claus giving out presents. Well, there's somebody hanging from a noose on a tree close by in the illustration, right? So it was politicized for sure. I think the Civil War period in my book is probably the most fascinating chapter because it was so interesting what they did with it. So you're here in Troy with your tome. What do you have planned for your visit here? Well, I actually arrived in Troy tomorrow morning. And I'm here for um, a week. I have some big engagements in other locations around. Uh, and then I'm back again. So the really big things going on in Troy would be at the um, Waterford Museum. I'm speaking on the 28th and the 29th at the Green Show with the Hart Cluett. We're having a reception with an art installation that I've been involved with for, with Ed Wheeler from Philadelphia, which I'm actually in a U-Haul right now driving to Troy. So <laughs> I just drove from Philadelphia. Uh, that's happening. And then on the third is the big Troy uh, stroll celebration of Twas. And uh, and then on the tw- the seventh, we're having a Orville Holly award ceremony dinner. And then on December the 2nd, I'm speaking at the Troy Library. And then on December the 23rd, we're all gathered at the library for a community lunch. And we're going to toast the poem on its actual 200th birthday. That's a community event free to the public. And I think that'll be really wonderful. It's a busy time of the year, but I think we'll have people come to that. I hope we do and say happy birthday. And we'll do a Zoom call so people can call in too. On December the 19th, we're holding a party in New York uh, for Clement Seymour because I, I nominated him into the New York State Libraries Hall of Fame and they accepted my nomination. And so we've put together a party for 300 people at the General Theological Seminary. I mean, there, I've got 100 events in 50 days. You know, I'm really looking forward to being in Troy. I really like, I really like Troy. I've been there five times, I guess. And I really, um, I was at the Hart Clue at last Christmas and I just really enjoy it. It's, it's just a wonderful community. I should also add, I'm speaking at the Emma Willard as well. Well, we're happy to welcome you back. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. This has been Carolyn Tennant reporting for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I can't hear this piece without mentioning the hilarious court trial performed in Troy a few years ago to decide who really wrote the poem. For more on the history of Twas the Night Before Christmas and to see an original edition of its first publication, stop by the Troy Public Library's main branch at 100 Second Street this Saturday, December 2nd at 3 p.m. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Bria Barthel. And I'm Keelan McPherson, a co-host and your engineer for this episode. We want to thank all our volunteers who made today's episode possible. Mark Dunley, Willie Terry, EP, Elizabeth Press, Brad Monkell, who's standing right behind me, Carolyn Tennant, and I'd like to thank my co-host for taking time out of her night, Bria Barthal, and myself, Kaylin McPherson. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community, and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. And we want to hear from you. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Hudson Mohawk Meg, or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. We appreciate you listening and supporting Grassroots Radio. 